scripture reading this week comes from 2 Samuel 9. This is the whole chapter, and I'll read it for us. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called, to, they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And the king said, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a son, a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. So in the 13th century, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II did an experiment. He wanted to raise infants without human interaction or human voice to see if there was a natural language that would develop, that they had innate in them. And he wanted to know if there was like what the language was that God imparted to Adam and Eve. Was it Hebrew or Aramaic? Was it Latin, perhaps? Was it even the language that their the baby's parents had so that it was innate and built into them already? So he had wet nurses and foster mothers care for the children, but they didn't coo to them. They didn't speak to them uh, in any kind of a way. What language was going to develop? Well, sadly, what happened was no language developed. uh, And in fact, none of the children even lived. They all passed away uh, as young babies. Language is essential to who we are. 
we need to be cooed to, we need to be talked with, we need to be communicated with. Even now, two years into parenting Joshua, he's just now really starting to form language. It's one of those weird, like, incredibly passive, but also very active stages of parenting to get our, ch- our kids to learn uh, what, how to speak, how to communicate with us. What we say matters, how we say uh, it matters. Our words and our tone and our body language all communicate something, and it forms us. It reminds us of the love and care that our parents have for us, and so we're going to learn some language. Over the next six weeks, we're going to go through a sermon series called Mother Tongue. We are a church in our infancy. We need to know what language we use, how we're going to speak about who we are, and what we do here at the table. I think the initial question, though, as we are starting this is, why do we even need new churches? What's the purpose? Don't we have enough churches here in Denver and around the country and the world already? Well, no. (laughs) Research statistics show that new churches bring in more non-Christians, unchurched and de-churched people, either people that have left church or have never gone to church in the beginning uh, through their doors than established churches. Church plants, or new churches, are primarily focused on inviting new people who are not a part of the family of God already into their doors, and so they have that outward-looking face. One of the things that we didn't want to do in starting the table was to establish just a new worshiping congregation and take some people from another church and get up and going. No, we want to reach out into our communities, be present in our neighborhoods, in our parishes, where God has put us to form these relationships to bring people into this family. Starting churches uh, is like conceiving, birthing, and raising a child. It's the most fun and the most challenging thing that you may ever do. Only 8% of people in Denver go to church on a Sunday, an evangelical church. That's not a political statement. That's a theological one. And only there's only one church for every 10,000 314 people in this area where we are in this little southeast corner of Denver, which means less than 1% of people go to church on any Sunday morning. There's a lot of reasons why this is, but we're not going to focus necessarily on those. Instead, we're going to give us ourselves language for what we want to, uh, how we want to be talking about who we are and what we're doing as we invite people into this new church. So this morning we're going to talk about our vision statement. Our vision for the table, which is the reason why we're establishing the church, is to provide a place at the table of God's grace. This is kind of the foundation of everything that we do. It's why we throw so many parties. It's why we celebrate communion every week. It's why we encourage you to invite your friends and neighbors. We want to provide a place for people at the table of God's grace. Scott McKnight, a wonderful theologian in Chicagoland, says, Tables form societies. The type of society we want to form is one that is characterized by the mercy and love and grace of God that invites people to come and feast with him wherever they are in their faith journeys. Providing a place at the table of God's grace is really pretty domestic. It's not like world-changing, but it's actually incredibly profound as well. 
And there's three aspects of doing this. It's voluntary, it's intentional, and it's sacrificial. So we voluntarily, intentionally, and sacrificially invite people to our tables so that they become a part of the family of God. This passage that we read is absolutely just an amazing, beautiful picture of what this looks like. King David is at the height of his power. Uh, the, The Philistines are no longer a threat. Israel stands tall politically, economically, militarily, and religiously in the ancient Near East. And yet David suddenly remembers the covenant he made with his friend Jonathan. Jonathan was King Saul's son, and if you know the story, David and Saul didn't necessarily get along uh, ever, really. (laughs) Uh, But Jonathan and David were very good friends, and towards the end of his life, David made a covenant with Jonathan and said, I will show kindness to any of your uh, descendants should they continue to exist. And so David remembers this at the height of his power and says, Is anyone still alive in Saul's house that I can show this kindness, that I can honor this covenant I made with Jonathan? This was super uh, highly unusual for a king to do. Most kings at this point would go, Hey, is there anybody still alive in the previous you know, monarchy's uh, descendants so I, that I can murder them and make sure that no one else is going to come and try to take this throne from me? But instead, he actually does the complete opposite. It's kindness that's on David's heart. Well, there was someone who was left from Saul's family. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was five years old when Saul, his grandfather, and his, and his dad, Jonathan, died. Um, they were killed in battle in the chaos of le- leaving and fleeing the castle. His nanny fell and dropped him, injured his feet in such a way that he could no longer walk. Technically, he wasn't really a threat. He wasn't going to uh, lead a charge to go overtake uh, the kingdom again. And so he went into hiding likely perceiving that should he show his face ever again, it would be the end of his life. But now he's being summoned to the king. Now David is calling to him. And I'm sure dread and despair hung in the air. I'm sure that's why servant Ziba said so many times, hey, his his feet are crippled, he's not a threat to you, not really knowing what was going to take place. So when Mephibosheth arrives in David's throne room, he falls on his face in homage to him and says, I am your servant. And instead of David pronouncing off with your head, he immediately shows kindness to him and says, do not fear. David shows kindness to Mephibosheth in three ways. He honors his covenant with Jonathan. He restores the land of Saul to Mephibosheth. And he instructs and commands even that he will eat at his table always. This kindness is voluntary, it's intentional, and it's sacrificial. David voluntarily made and honored his covenant with Jonathan. He didn't have to do it from the beginning. Even when the kingdom was was settled, there was no obligation for him. But he remembered his covenant. He remembered the kindness that he wanted to extend to Mephibosheth. And so he sought him out involuntarily and intentionally to show him this kindness. He sacrificially gave Mephibosheth his grandfather's land. This was more than enough to provide for him, as the, as the text tells us. But David goes even further, that says, and he says, You will eat at my table always. No longer does Mephibosheth have to be in hiding. No longer does he have to be dependent on the generosity of anyone else. He now has instant wealth 
instant provision, and instant status. He is like one of the king's sons. This kindness that David shows is not mere casual niceness. It's not greeting card sentimentality. This kindness has materiality to it. The Hebrew word here is hesed. And hesed is often translated in our English uh, Bibles as loving kindness. It is life-sustaining grace. It characterizes covenant relationships, but it also surpasses them. It's loyal love that David is expressing. And the need for hesed, the need to express this kindness, is emphasized, especially when it's unnatural, when it's voluntary, when it goes beyond the cultural momentum and expectations that in this case would have been towards revenge. Hesed changes the course. Hesed is intentional because it works for the good of others. It sees beyond whatever society designates someone to be and acts to affirm their God-created identity. Hesed is sacrificial because it's not convenient. It necessitates resources and energy to sustain life instead of taking it. Hesed love, David shows us, is inviting someone to your table. Extremely domestic and yet an incredibly profound invitation. Four times in this chapter it's repeated that he will eat at the king's table also. David doesn't just give Mephibosheth land and servants and provision. He commands that he will eat at his table also. Eating together in the ancient Near East was the most intimate thing that you could do with someone outside of the bedroom. This is an incredible statement that David is making. He's inviting him into his family. He's making him a prince. He's making an enemy become family. Hesed love is providing a place at the table of God's grace. On this passage, Eugene Peterson says, We need to reinstate this story as a great love story in society's atrophied and declining capacities of love. How do we do that? We do it by inviting people to our tables. I had to sneeze. It went away. All right. (laughs) So at the table, we are endeavoring to restore this story in today's culture. Our vision, as I said, the reason we exist is to provide a place at the table of God's grace. I'm saying this over and over and over again so that we can get it. It's kind of rhymy. It's kind of kitschy for me a little bit, but it it is exactly what we want to to, uh, portray in who we are. There is a table set. This is God's table, and we want people to come and be a part of it. Our mission, or how we do this, how this kind of breaks out, is that we invite people into a relationship with Christ and form a community that worships and serves together for the transformation of the city. That's a really, really big statement. Hopefully it's something that we never fully achieve. I'll say it again. We invite people into a relationship with Christ and form a community that worships and serves together for the transformation of the city. Quite simply, we invite people to worship Jesus, to form relationships, and to serve the city. We're going to talk a little bit more about this mission statement next week, actually. Worship, relationship, and service. Our unofficial purpose statement, which is my personal mission statement, is that we want to eat and drink people into the kingdom of heaven. 
I think this is exactly what Jesus did. He was called a glutton. Uh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so I, and I hope you, want to be like Jesus. It's what we're doing here. So we want to form people into what and who he is. Uh, we often call this hospitality today, but it goes way beyond the entertainment value that Food Network and Williams Sonoma and even the restaurant industry uh, portrays. They do a great job of showing us what hospitality is, but I think they also fall a little bit short. The Greek word for hospitality that we have in the New Testament is philozenia. Philozenia comes from two words: uh, the brotherly love of a stranger. Well, yeah, the brother brotherly love and Xenia, a stranger. So you love someone who is a stranger or an enemy so that they become family. It has deep-rooted meaning in it. It is that Hesed love that we see in our passage this morning. Henry Nouwen says that hospitality is this. It primarily means the creation of a free space where a stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. This, again, is that Hesed love that David shows Mephibosheth. Hospitality is voluntary, it's intentional, it's sacrificial. It has a purpose and a direction to it. Its purpose is to make someone a friend or family, and its direction is towards an enemy. So it's inviting people into this family. And we're going to talk about hospitality in a few weeks. We're introducing a lot of the language today. So um, we do this. We provide a place at the table of God's grace through a number of ways. I want to highlight five this morning. I know five is like a big number in sermons, right? (laughs) But it's really pretty simple. We do this in five ways specifically. First one is feasting. We celebrate the holidays of the church as well as the holidays of our culture while we're doing a Cinco de Mayo uh, happy hour. Uh, we're inviting people into this. This is something that people want to do anyway. We want to co-opt it, basically. Um, and so we throw parties. That's what we do. If you were here last week, we throw really good parties, I'd like to think. Uh, we'd like to do them up special. Um, it's one of the things I personally love to do. Um, I believe Christians should be known as the ones who throw the best parties. We have so much to celebrate And yet so often that is not our reputation. And it's not that we're partying just to numb ourselves to the pain that is going on in the world. It's partying and feasting, knowing that all that pain, all that suffering has been taken up in Jesus and will one day again be taken up, that he will come and destroy it once and for all. So we are feasting in the midst while we suffer and have pain in this life. We don't ignore it. We acknowledge it. It's another personal mission statement of mine that we need to reclaim the reputation of being a church that feasts. Um, One of my goals for us as the table is that when we invite people in, when you invite people in, when other people hear about it, they go, oh, you don't want to miss one of those parties. You definitely want to be there for that. We want our church reputation to be one of great feasting. We don't just do it for us, though. We do it for the neighborhood as well. We've been planted here in Southmore, uh, in Hamden South uh, neighborhood. And so we want to serve this neighborhood. Um, In January of 2020, Stacey and I were walking into the school, Southmore Elementary, when you could still do that. 
uh, and they asked us, the auction committee asked us if we would host a party for the auction to be able to raise uh, funds for the school, to be able to support the school. And so we did that. People bought tickets and all those proceeds were donated to the school. We did a seven course meal for 30 people. They weren't going to do it. Uh, that was delayed and they weren't going to do another party due to COVID stuff. But after we did ours, they came to us and said, again, would you guys host another party? So we did that actually quite quickly. <laughs> um, it was a very quick turnaround for us. Um, but uh, we hosted 40 people. So far, we've raised $5,000 for the local elementary school, and we'll be doing it again this year. We'd love to have your help in that. Um, at no time did we ever have a big gospel presentation. We let the invitation of sharing our table and open our home be the presentation. It was incredibly extravagant. It was super abundant, excessive, and wildly unnecessary. And that was the feedback that we got from people, which is what I wanted. It was voluntary, it was sacrificial, and it was intentional. People would, throughout the nights, would go, so are you a chef? And say, no, I'm a pastor. And they did not know what to do with that. But Stacy and I were able to share what we were doing and how we were doing it. But equally, equally import, as important is that we did that, we showed them through our hospitality. We want to be known as a church church that feasts together. One of the ways we do this in a small way is through Sunday suppers. I talked about this a little bit already uh, in the announcements, but we host monthly Sunday, Sunday suppers to eat a meal together as the family of God. That is one of the big pictures God gives us through Scripture, and so we want to acknowledge that. So we have a family meal together. We gather around the table. Sometimes it's a little more formal. Sometimes we have a little bit more food going on. Sometimes it's a potluck, and we all contribute what we can bring to the table as well. We invite friends and neighbors that aren't yet connected to the table because we do that on a regular basis when we have family meals. We invite people in to share the table with us, and so we want to do that in who we are as a church as well. It's an easy entry point. I think a lot of people want to belong before they believe, and I think we all want to belong somewhere. And when we sit around a table together and eat a meal, we know that we belong to something. This happens through intentional invitation, the third thing that we do. We are regularly inviting people over to our home. We host playdates, family barbecues, happy hours, wine tastings, guys' nights, and women's nights. We are intentional about who we are inviting over. Stacey and I will sit down and make a list and say, okay, let's start inviting. We start texting. And we get a lot of no's, and we just keep inviting people. Uh, we invite people that don't look like us, that don't um, sound like us, that don't believe like us, because we want those are the relationships that we want to form with the people that we've been put into uh, relationship with. Stacey will text families uh, to come join her at the park to play with the kids on the playground after school. Super easy. Every mom is looking to fill time in their afternoon, and this is a great way. And she's able to talk to people um, and just share life with them. We um, spend time together. We eat with people, and f families inevitably become woven together in these everyday, ordinary invitations. There becomes a sense of belonging. We call these people. We text them when something's going wrong to see if, something's, if, if somebody's hurt themselves. We are there for them, and these are the relationships that we are beginning to establish. Prayer. This is actually kind of the foundation one but I wanted to put it towards the middle. Since December 2020, every Tuesday night, uh, 
Uh, we've been praying together over Zoom. We pray for one another. We pray for our neighborhood. We pray for our city. Um, we pray for each of you as well. Uh, it's one of the highlights of our week. One of the uh, families who um, lives right around the corner actually joins us uh, very regularly. Uh, we'd invite all of you to join us as well. We do it over Zoom so that if you have kids, you can put their, put him down, her down, excuse me, uh, him or her, all of them. We try to get all of them down, and then we inevitably have uh, a guest show up to our Zoom call as well. Um, but we uh, can pop on Zoom and start praying together. We can share what's going on, and then um, we spend a little bit of time praying as well. Uh, we'd love for you to join us. Um, there should be a link. If you want a link, just let me know. Text me, um, email me, and we will get that to you. Um, I regularly walk the neighborhood and pray for its peace. We pray for the people that are moving into the neighborhood. We pray for the people that are moving out of the neighborhood as well, just down the corner. They've been some sweet neighbors to us during our um, almost four years here, and uh, we've really enjoyed our, our relationship. So we're, we pray for them as they are moving out of this neighborhood as well. We have a prayer email list of nearly 250 people that are constantly praying for what God is doing in this place. Prayer reminds us that we are joining in with what God is doing, and so it forms the foundation of the work that we do here. And we worship. We worship every week. Worship is an incredibly important part of our rhythms as human beings to remind us that we were created in the image of God. That Jesus has redeemed us and freed us from our sin, and by the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to live in that new life. And each week we celebrate communion. Each week we come to this table because this is the table that God invites us to. Jesus instructed his followers to eat this meal as often as they met together. It's not something that we warden off for special occasions, whether that's monthly or quarterly. It's a practice that we believe sustains our lives and is essential to our worship. If you hear nothing out of what I have to say, if you zone out for a while, you are still coming to the table and eating a meal that Jesus set for you. You receive that grace that he gives to you in this meal. Who are those people that you need to, that you want to intentionally invite to your table? Who are those people that you want to intentionally invite to the table? I'd encourage you to just make a list, write the names down. Makes it real, it makes it real to us, it organizes us. Stacey helps me be organized. And then to begin to pray for those people. You don't have to start inviting them, just begin praying for them. And God, I believe, will open your eyes as he's opened mine to be able to see who are those people that we want to invite into this community that we want to have over for dinner, that we want to have over for a play date, that we want to extend, open our family and also the family of the table to them as well. Begin to pray for your neighbors. Learn their names, learn their stories, and hopefully invite them as well. Now, I think at this point it would be really easy for me just to say, all right, be like David. Go find your enemy's grandson and invite him to your table. Give him your land and uh, make sure that he's always eating with you. Or be like me, even, and, and throw multi-course dinners that benefit a school. This is not really sustainable, and that's not really what this sermon is about because this is not a go and a do. This isn't prescription. This is invitation. 
on the wall next to our dinner table. This is our dinner table. This is where we eat. And that's why, for me, it's so symbolic that we use it as our communion table as well. But we have this painting here. Um, it's called The Trinity by Andre Rublev. It's also on the front of your worship guides this week. Um, it depicts the three angels that met Abraham at the Oak of Mamre in uh, Genesis 18. It's so calming. I love just the beauty of it in itself, the yellows, the soft blues, the greens, the dark reds. It's incredibly rich with symbolism. And as, as you can see, maybe you can see behind the speaker, but all their heads, this, the three persons of the Trinity are all kind of bowing and deflecting to one another in relationship. Deference, unity, and peace. But what's most striking to me about this is the open space here in the front, in the center of the painting, kind of inviting us in to the table to sit and enjoy the life of God at the table of God. See, the truth is, is that it's not me doing the work. It's not the Grappengators. It's not all of us. It's Jesus, who is the true host of the table. Through the Holy Spirit, the table is where we are invited into the life God the Father offers us through Jesus the Son. Every time we sit down at the table, any table, and we pray thanksgiving over our meal, we are acknowledging the gift that has been set before us. Every time we host a party, we acknowledge that it is Christ through his Hesed love is the one who shows us true hospitality. While we were yet sinners, Paul writes, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he sent his son Jesus to love us into his resurrection family. And so we extend that invitation to others because that invitation has been extended to us. Through Jesus' life, he was invited to the tables of others, Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners. But it was at the Last Supper that he showed us how it would take, what it would take to form his family, his voluntary, intentional sacrifice. God didn't have to send his son to redeem the world. He could have let it just spin out of control, but he wanted to. He wanted to recapture the closeness that he had with humanity at creation. This is what we celebrate in communion. N.T. Wright says, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. We are all invited to the family table where Jesus is the host. It is the Hesed love that Jesus has for us when he invites us to the table. It's not mere sentiment, but it has flesh and blood. It took flesh and blood to set this table. At his table, we find that we are part of a new family, a resurrected family based on the wine and the bread that Jesus serves us as his body and blood. His invitation, it is his invitation that we want you to heed this morning. The table is voluntarily, intentionally, and sacrificially extending God's hesed love through providing a place at the table of God's grace. It's ordinary and incredibly extraordinary. It's eating and drinking. It's family dinners and extravagant parties. So together, let's be praying and inviting people who would be hungry to find their place at the table of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you set a table for us 
that you meet us where we are, that you come to meet us in our need, in our hunger, in our base need of who we are as humans. Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for being gracious and kind to us, calling us into your family that you are forming. Lord, may we long to invite others. May we, uh, as we experience new restaurants and places that we go to that we get excited about, may we be excited about what you are doing here in this place as well and invite others into it. May our eyes be open to the relationships that we have, to the places that you have put us, to what you are doing in working your grace and mercy in us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.